I had one victim say to me, I don't believe in God anymore. And I thought, well, how do I answer that? And what I said to her is God understands. He understands. And I think he's a big enough God to wait for you. And, and so we have to take victims where they are. And I think that's hard sometimes for Christians to do because we, we want to bring them in to back into that fold and we want them to be in that place where they're at peace with God and at peace with the church. But, you know, I caution people to just be careful because you need to be where the victim is and let them guide you along to where they are spiritually. You're listening to Altered Stories with Michelle Renee Gutch. Hello, Altered Stories show listeners, and happy April and spring. This is your chief storyteller host, Michelle Saunders Gutch, and welcome to episode 78, Sandy's Comforted to Be a Comfort God Story. And thank you for listening to this episode and to my show that is part of the Spark Media Network and can be heard on the Edify app, the world's most powerful Christian app. And friends, I hope all is well, and I hope you are enjoying spring. And for those of you that celebrate Lent are also enjoying the Lent season. I'm also getting excited for Easter, also known by many as Resurrection Day. And friends, I'm really enjoying reading many of the great books that I picked up while I was in Nashville. And some of the books that I've also received from my previous guests, my current guest, also getting ready to start working on my healing memoir book. So friends, lots going on. I am so, so excited to bring to the mic today a very special guest, Sandy Phillips Kirkham. And Sandy is a wife to Bill, a mother of two grown children, two beautiful granddaughters, and they have to be because she's absolutely gorgeous, and two dogs. We got to hear about dogs because she's my kind of gal. I love dogs. Uh, she's, she's an author, and she uses her voice to help victims of clergy abuse and I'm going to let her share more about all the wonderful things that she is doing. So let's get to know her. Hello, Sandy, and welcome to the Altered Story Show. How Thank are you. you? I'm doing great. Thank you. It's good to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to be a part of your podcast. Well, it's wonderful. I love doing this. And I just think my listeners would like to learn a little bit more about all of what you're doing and who you are that I haven't shared. So can you share? Sure. Um, I live in Cincinnati. I've lived here all my life. i um, been married to my husband for 42 or 43 years. I'm not sure I can lose track at this point. Um, I am, as you said, a victim advocate for clergy abuse victims. I work for the Hope of Survivors Ministry, which is a faith-based ministry. Um, that helps mostly adult women who've been abused by either clergy. Of, and when I talk about clergy, I, it really is any spiritual advisor. So it could be a choir director, a Sunday school teacher, someone in a spiritual role. But 
I work um, as an interdenominational spokesperson for the Hope of Survivors. Um, I'm also serving on the board of Council on Child Abuse, which we go into the schools and we talk to children about child abuse and bullying and signs and things to look for. So we try to get to, to kids when they're at an earlier age um, to help them recognize the signs of abuse. Um, and so that's that, that work I really enjoy doing because I think the earlier we can get to children and to help them understand good touch, bad touch, you know, we can avoid and hopefully prevent many abuses. Well, I loved all the great work that you're doing there. And, you know, my story and what I endured as a childhood cult survivor early on. And man, it would have been wonderful to have someone like you for rehabilitation for you know, me and my siblings who went through mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So anyway, but we're going to hear more. Uh, yeah, this is going to be a great conversation, Sandy. But before we get into the heavier pieces of the conversation, um, share with me a little bit about spring. Why, why do you like spring and, and Easter? What, what are your plans? And, you know, how do you celebrate with all your family? And I love the colors of spring. I just can't wait to get the, I planted about 25 pansies today, as a matter of fact. And I love just the, having the color come out in spring because we're just so tired of the, the winters here in Cincinnati. And by the time March, and my birthday's in March. So it's kind of like the beginning of spring, my birthday and Easter. Um, Easter, we celebrate uh, with church. We go to church and um, my two granddaughters, of course, just love that being a part of the church and, and the Easter egg hunts and that kind of thing. I really see, you know, Easter to me is, is, is hope. Um, and as a victim, we often don't see hope. And so for me, I think it represents that there is hope and there's healing. And that's what makes, for me, Easter more, even more special than Christmas. Yeah, it is. It's very precious and new beginnings, you know? Yes. Yes. I mean, so it's also filled with allergies and stuff like <laughs> yes. that for those of us. But you know what? I can overlook that. I mean, I just love when things start to get green yeah. and, yes. you know, like you said, so it's a very uplifting. And then, of course, celebrating Jesus yes. and his resurrection um, is so really profound. So, you know, Sandy, you and I have had conversations. We've also, you, you know, talked about my show and mm -hmm. why I share stories. And, you know, I know you are a person that does believe in that, you know, and, and I would just like to know why do you think women should share their stories? So one of the reasons I wrote the book is that after I had been sharing my story with different people and different conferences and places, I had so many people would say to me, oh, you should really write a book. This is a powerful story. And I wasn't ever interested in writing a book or ever thought I should write a book. I'm not really a writer. I jokingly always say that my English teacher is probably rolling over in her grave at the thought that I wrote a book. But it, at some point, I began to realize that my story was powerful and that I could help other victims. And one of the things that I think propelled me to write the book was, and you sort of alluded to this earlier, what if I'd heard someone else's story when this was happening to me? Maybe it would have given me the courage to come forward and tell someone. Maybe it would have 
made me realize, because I really thought I was the only one. I didn't believe that this could ever be happening to anyone else. And so I thought my story is important to let someone know they're not alone. And I've also discovered that many of our stories, while they're different in many ways, there's a, there's a common thread and that we all share the same feeling sometimes. And so to have someone else articulate that for them, um, I think our stories are just important to share for each other. And we never know what part of my story is going to touch someone or your story is going to touch someone in a certain way. And it's those connections that are so important that may be the one thing that takes someone out of the despair that they may be feeling and the hopelessness that they may be feeling, knowing that someone else has been through this and understands where they are. Yeah, that's beautifully said. And I really, that's why you and I are having this conversation right. tonight. So Sandy, where does your comforted to be a comfort God's story begin? It really um, begins you know, I was sexually abused at age 16 by my youth pastor. It went on for five years. I, it ended because he was caught. I don't know that it would have ever ended at any point because he was in total control. But when it was over, I decided I was just going to forget it and move on. And I spent 27 years keeping that secret from my husband, my close family and friends. And then I had a trigger factor, which I talk about in the first chapter of the book that forced me to deal with my past. And I believed that, okay, I was going to deal with this. I was going to confront him. I hired a private investigator, found him, and confronted him 27 years later. And then I thought, okay, I'm done. I'm going to heal, move on, and I'm done. And I realized that I wasn't done, and God was telling me I wasn't done. And it was, you know, the Bible verse that, bought, that God comforts those that they can be comforted by God so they can comfort others. And that, that really just, touched my heart, that this was what I was to do. And that's why my comfort came, my, my story really started after my healing began. It took me about two years to really, I think, to a point where I felt that I could really heal and help others. Because for two years, I was probably a mess trying to deal with this. Um, you know, I had a lot of guilt. I had a lot of shame I had to work through. I, I had a lot of lies to unravel, but he had really mess with my mind. And so once I was able to find my own healing, I knew that my purpose and God's purpose in my life was to help others to heal. And, they, and I could do that by sharing my story and being a victim advocate. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot in your book. I mean, I've kind of perused through it. Let me pray upon you. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I really appreciated you signing it and also, kind of looking through, you know, um, your podcast tour, tune in to listen. Um, that's pretty amazing um, to be able to have that um, there, you know, for a variety of people to go back and listen to. And then as I was going through, I was looking at how you, you know, broke it into those victim, survivor, advocate, mm -hmm. you know, and how God has worked through each one of these, you know, I would say these, um, maybe, um, I don't know if it's what we call a chapter, but different, you know, different 
parts, ways of parts. Yeah. yeah. Journey of going mm-hmm. through the healing. So as I, as I looked at your part one victim, you talk about, you know, what transpired and how that all came down and, you know, how the pastor or the clergy was able to just get, you know, move on. That's so hard. You know, when you Mm -hmm. see these things that happen and there's no accountability, but I would, I would really like to know, um, kind of the, like, how did that play into what you were doing uh, in your life at that time? I mean, after that moving forward, but you, the trap and, you know, all those things that you had to deal with while you were being abused, Sandy. I mean, that's how do you, does a 16 year old process these? Well, it was, it, it, I didn't process it very well. I just, I sort of just sort of blocked it out and accepted it as a behavior that I couldn't change. And that this was, and he was very controlling. Um, and, and so I felt trapped. That's just how I felt. I didn't feel like I had any way out. I didn't feel like I could tell anyone. Of course, he made me promise not that I couldn't tell anyone. He told me no one would believe me. And I, at that point, also understood this man was very well loved in the church. He was very dynamic, very charismatic. People treated him like a rock star. And so I was very much aware that if I were to tell anyone that what was going on, this was going to be a bombshell in the church. And I certainly didn't want to be responsible for the downfall of this man and the, and the, the dreams and the beliefs that these people had in this man. And so for me, it was a matter of just plodding along and doing what he told me to do, because that's how I could survive. Um, and he was physically abusive. So I had that fear, um, you know, once you've been hit and you know that capability is there, you're afraid not to do as you're told. Um, so for me, it was just accepting it. I mean, in the beginning, I did try to get out of the relationship. I would go to him and say, I'm guilt. I feel so guilty for doing this um, because I felt like I was responsible too. This was, I was 16 and thinking I'm gonna somewhat of an adult. So I could have said no, which in reality, I had no power to say no to this man. But when I would go to him and say to him, I need to, I need to stop this. He would, he would respond in one of two ways. One, he would say to me, well, you're no longer a virgin and no one's ever going to want you anymore. And you're not worthy of anyone else's love, but mine. Or he would become very loving and tell me how much he needed me and that his ministry depended upon me. He would play the guilt trip. And so I did feel trapped. I didn't feel like I could, I could do anything I did was going to be hurtful to me, to him, to the church. And so I, I just stayed where I was. Um, and I gave up. I think I eventually, I'd say into maybe one or two years into the relationship, I gave up. I, I knew I couldn't get out. And so I just accepted. I, I believed I was never going to be married. I'd never have children. Um, he was married. You know, he had two children. So this relationship was going to be a dead end for me, but I didn't know how to get out of it. And, and, and victims talk about that. We, you know, just yeah. because, because, just because there is a way out, doesn't mean you see that way out. And, and when you are so controlled by someone, you really don't, you're powerless. You've lost your power. I lost my voice. I lost my self-esteem. I was totally just put down and, and trapped by this man. Yeah. Oh my gosh. My heart really goes out to you and to others who've come through this and 
you know, I might, like I said, I myself experienced right. it, but I was subjected to this violation with a group of others, including mm -hmm. my mother and my baby right. sister. And that's a whole different kind of violation, mm -hmm. but still it's a violation and it's abuse of power. Right. And, you know, that it's just either way, it's a very ugly ugly thing to have to endure but as you um I, your wisdom and all the things and where you're at now if there's someone that knows someone I don't think we'd have listeners at this young of age because first this is a very adult conversation mm -hmm. but if there's a mother who has a daughter who has come through this what what would you advise that mother um, to do or to help her daughter, you know, I would, I, I would love to get your perspective. Well, on that. I, I think one of the first things that most victims, whether it's an adult victim, because women can be, you know, victims as well. You, you can never tell a victim enough that it was not their fault. You need to, to say that over and over to a victim. And even after you say it, it's hard for victims to believe that there wasn't something they could have done or should have done or should have said and in reality, they were targeted. They were, they were chosen by this predator for their vulnerabilities. They were targeted and then they were taken advantage of by someone they should have been able to trust. And I tell victims that you did the best you could with the coping skills you had at the time. So it's, it's, it's easy to look back and say, well, who I am now, I could have done or should have done, but that's not who you were at that time. I think it's important to recognize too, for, for a mother to understand that her daughter, it's not going to be easy to let go of this. It, it stays with victims and, it's, and it stays with them lifelong. The difference is as you heal and begin to have the healing process and God working in your life, it doesn't become the prominent part of your life. Um, it, it, it's always a part of your life, but it doesn't define your life like it did at the time of the abuse or when you were going through the healing process. Um, but, you know, be able to say that let that person understand that whatever they're believing about themselves, it was not their fault. And I, I think that's the most important, important thing to, mm -hmm. to, to convey to, to victims. Okay, that's so good. How would you describe the behavior? I mean, you, you've talked a little bit in, in depth some um, around the, I guess, this abuser um, just, you know, very persuasive kind of person, I would say, would you say, and we know controlling, but would you say this person had a sex addiction or, you know, that, I mean, so that young girls can become more aware or, you know what I'm saying in the church or how do they say, okay, oh, I'm running as far as I can from this kind of minister or, you know, to help them maybe get their antennas up or? Well, first of all, I think there are a lot of times, I would, there are red flags, like in most of those red flags, when you're being approached by someone, you have an uncomfortable feeling. There's something that seems off to you, but because he's the pastor or the choir director, you brush it off because that's who they are. And so that's the first thing. And then I, I certainly had that. I remember uh, and I talk about this in the book, he asked me to go to his basement and listen to a Neil Diamond song. 
I mean, I never had a pastor do that before, but I'm thinking, well, it should be okay. This is the pastor. So we go to the basement. He puts this music on. It was Brother Love's Traveling Salvation Show. I didn't understand the lyrics. And instead of sitting in the chair that was across the room, he sat very close to me on the couch. And I remember feeling uncomfortable. But again, not wanting to offend him or not thinking I shouldn't be thinking bad things about this person, I, I let that uncomfortable feeling go. So I think one of the first things is you have a right to say to someone or you have a right to feel a certain way if you're uncomfortable to express that or at least to say, I would rather you do this and sit over here. We need to give girls and sometimes boys voices to say, this isn't what I really want to be doing or I'm uncomfortable or at least go and tell someone, you know, the other night when I was with the pastor, he wanted me to do such and such. We need to give voices to our young people. And I think that's changing. I think people are more aware um, because of, you know, the internet. We have, you know, so many talk shows that bring these topics up. So we're a little more aware of it than they were at the time that this was occurring in, in my life. Um, now you talk about the sex addiction. Interestingly enough, uh, when I confronted him, he told me that he had been in therapy and that he uh, had been identified as a sexual addict. Keep this in mind as he's still a pastor. He was still a minister in a church in Alabama when I found him. He is now uh, retired or semi-retired, but he continues to have good standing in the Disciples of Christ Church. So I think part of the issue is too that churches are not taking this seriously enough and that we're rehiring these men when we in reality should be saying they've lost that privilege of ministry by their actions. Um, you know, I, people will sometimes say, well, you know, we really aren't supposed to judge. And, and if they're truly repentant, we're, I'm not judging their soul. I'm not judging whether they're truly repentant or not. I'm simply judging their ability to do their job. And, and based on their history of sexual abuse, they are not fit for that job. Doesn't mean they don't deserve God's grace. Um, it doesn't mean they can't be forgiven, doesn't mean they can't get counseling and help or whatever, but they've lost that privilege of ministry. They've proven that they're not fit for that position. Now, in my case, uh, when he was hired at our church, um, it wasn't the first time he had an, an inappropriate um, accusation made against him. Right after he was hired, a young woman from his first church came forward and accused him of inappropriate behavior. Uh, he didn't deny it said he was sorry, said it would never happen again. But within six months uh, of that accusation, he was kissing me in my hallway in my home. And so these men, we really can't trust, um, you know, that they won't do this again. And we don't, churches don't have a right to risk someone else based on the fact that they think this person is safe. Um, there should be no risk when you walk into the doors, of, walk through the doors of a church. You should be able to feel safe you should be able to feel God's love, and you should never, ever be harmed by someone who claims to be a shepherd, who's a wolf in sheep's yes. clothing. Yeah. Yes, and the Bible specifically talks about that Jesus goes hard on those yes. that do mm -hmm. that. Yes. There's a high level of accountability in the Bible. Yes. So I find that interesting, too, but not from what Jesus is saying, but right. that people are still you know, sweeping it under the rug or, you know, and I just, so it's good that we're having this conversation. Yeah. This is good therapy for me too. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> okay. So now we get to talk about the good, 
part yeah. two survivor. Okay. Um, you know, you've already kind of shared some of that at a very high level. Um, and you talked through, you know, the aftermath and um, tell us about the justice, how you were seeking it, um, how the restitution came in. I mean, were you comfortable there, yeah. you know, and the spiritual ones too, Sandy, right. we need to address those too. Mm -hmm. Well, but, you know, I wanted justice in the sense that I, I thought by confronting him um, that that would bring me some peace and justice because I really, what I wanted from him was for him to finally acknowledge the pain, finally acknowledge what his actions truly did to me. And he never really got that. And I, I, I don't think he was capable of understanding that. Um, and, and that was sad for me. I, I wanted him to be able to articulate the pain he had caused. And the fact that he remained in ministry and, he, and the fact that he was a little defiant in the fact that I would have this need to have to meet with him um, told me that he really didn't understand. You know, when I first had the investigator arrange the meeting, instead of saying to the investigator, I will do whatever she needs. You make sure we have this meeting and I will be happy to help her in any way I can. That's what he needed to say. But what he said was, I don't want to have the meeting. Can we avoid doing this? I've changed. I'm a different person. So that was disappointing. So I didn't receive justice that way. So I did go to his church leaders. Uh, I wrote uh, letters to his 11 elders explaining that I felt that he was unsafe in the church. I was concerned that no one in his congregation was aware of his past. I got no response, not one response of the 11 elders. Then I decided to go to the president of his denomination. And I was basically told, um, well, this happened so long ago that it really isn't relevant to us today. Um, and so I really kind of hit a brick wall in that sense. But what I finally was able to understand and accept was justice was going to come within for me. I had to let go of hoping for a different outcome. And I had done what I believed all I could do. I wasn't malicious in it. I wasn't trying to, uh, I simply wanted to tell my story to say, you need to be aware of this man's past. And I did that. And so I had to move on and I had to learn to forgive him, um, which wasn't easy, uh, but I did. Um, what I learned about forgiveness was it was allowing me to unburden myself. It was allowing me to let go of the pain so that I could live my life. Because as long as I held on to the anger and the hatred for I had for this man, he was still a part of my life. Because every day that I woke up and thought about the anger that I had for him, he was still with me. And I didn't want him to be a part of my life. I wanted to live the life that I was meant to live without him in it. And I could only do that if I said I was willing to forgive him to let go of it. Um, now, forgiveness doesn't mean that there are consequences. It doesn't mean that I remain silent, but it does mean that I let God take the pain and take the, he takes the justice. And I, 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 I let him do that. And I probably strayed from your original question. Yeah, <laughs> well, we're gonna be, yeah, that's okay. I mean, we're going to talk about, I want to hear about the spiritual wounds. Okay. Because I had big time spiritual wounds. Right. And I would yeah. love for you to share that and how yeah. God is helping you through that. 
So I, I was very, very active in the church before this man arrived at our church. I started attending church when I was about eight years old. I loved everything about church. I went to Sunday school, vacation, Bible school, church camp. As I got older, I taught Sunday school. I sang in the choir. I led retreats. I was really just, it was a place I absolutely loved and I, I felt supported and cared for. Once he took my innocence away and once he took my sexuality away from me, all of that changed. Um, it became contaminated for me. Um, and because the abuse went on for five years and because I was watching this man preach on love and sanctity of marriage after he had sex with me the night before, that really, really messed with my mind spiritually. And not to get too graphic, but you know, we had sex in his office in the church. And so the church itself became a, a trigger for me. And I had a very difficult time with church. Now I took my kids to church because I wanted them to have that experience, but I never could engage myself in church. Um, I had difficulty praying. I, I was someone who read my Bible every single day. After the abuse, I never opened it for 27 years. Once I was able to understand what was done to me and that God had never really forsaken me, I was able to find my spirituality again. I still have difficulty with church, not as much. And I understand, you know, before I could never, I couldn't relate to the, the problems I was having sitting in church or when I passed the minister's office, I would get a knot in my stomach. Now, you know, I don't have those feelings as much, but when I do, I'm able to process them and I, and I know why they're there and I let them go, uh, which before I couldn't do, I had to let them just gnaw away at me. Um, I think it's important for people to understand that spiritual abuse really does take someone's spiritual life, that sacred part of their life, and it twists it. And it, it, it just, I think contamination is the best word I can think of doing that. I remember thinking, you know, I'm going to get my spiritual life back. But once I was able to heal and, be, and that healing started, I wanted to have that, my spirituality back. I wanted to have that relationship back with God. I began reading my Bible again. I'm still a little uncomfortable when people will say to me, well, the Bible says, just because that reminds me of, you know, he used the Bible against me. He was telling me that he was just like David in the Bible and that we were married in God's eyes. So, you know, I, but I, now that I understand it, it, it's, it's a little bit easier for me. And I'm, I, that makes sense. Um, my life with God right now is in a great place. And I will say, that part of me still mourns the loss of that spiritual life that I once had within the church. I miss singing the hymns. They don't have the same meaning to me that they once had. Um, and I think that'll get better. I mean, healing takes time. I, I can see that each day or week or month, sometimes I'll do something and I'll think, oh, well, that didn't bother me like it used to. Um, I can listen to songs and hymns now where I, I couldn't do that before. I can do that now. Um, so I see that healing that God has provided in my life and I'm grateful for it. Um, church, like I said, is sometimes still difficult. Um, I wouldn't say it's difficult as much as I don't derive from it the same kind of feelings that I once did. But again, maybe that'll get better. I think it will. <laughs> I think it will. I mean, I just, it's a slow, slow process. And you started healing much later in life, like right. I did. Yes. And yes. so it just takes time. And 
you know, encouragement and God's, you know, and, and that's why you're the second guest on my show, you know, who's had spiritual abuse and that's been deeper than just that, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, but it is, I think, a ploy of the enemy to try to keep you from everything that God has purposed you to be and do. And I want victims, I think that's why it's important to tell our stories, because I think sometimes, and I felt this, I felt guilty for not having this close relationship with God. And I felt guilty because I couldn't go to church and do the same things. And, and so I think it's important. So once you understand why you feel this way and why you, it, it's the aftermath of a spiritual abuse. And once you understand that, then you can move on and heal from it. Um, but, you know, so many victims are afraid to speak out to say, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that I can go to church or I feel guilty because I don't feel like I can pray the same way. You know, those are all OK, because th- th- that's a normal response to someone who took advantage of your spiritual life. I mean, they really did tap into your trust of a spiritual leader. And when they did that, they really did um, molest your spiritual life. That's what they did. Um, and, and so there's going to be an aftermath and consequences of that. Um, and so victims, I sometimes think, are relieved when they can hear my voice saying, I experienced that too, and it's okay. You know, it's okay to be. And, and I, had one, I had one victim say to me, I don't believe in God anymore. And I thought, well, how do I answer that? And what I said to her is God understands. He understands. And I think he's a big enough God to wait for you. And, and so we have to take victims where they are. And I think that's hard sometimes for Christians to do because we, we want to bring them into back into that fold and we want them to be in that place where they're at peace with God and at peace with the church. But you know, I caution people to just be careful because you need to be where the victim is and let them guide you along to where they are spiritually um, because they can get back there. But it, it, it may take a little longer or not in the same way that you would hope that they might take that path. Yes, most definitely. And, you know, I just am so grateful that you're sharing so authentically about this tonight. And for those that are going to hear this, I think, you know, this can be a global all around the world. Oh, uh, uh, victims. And it could even go reciprocal you know, a woman pastor or a sure. woman leader taking, I mean, you see it in schools where right. these teachers are, you oh, know, it's crazy. It's horrible. And mm-hmm. so really think this is a topic that people need to hear. And it, it doesn't just, as I said earlier, it's not just about minors. It is about adult women too, because when you're in a vulnerable situation, a divorce, a death in the family or whatever your vulnerability is, it's so easy then for someone who is a predatory pastor to, to tap into that and take advantage of that. And, and people say, well, she's old enough to know better. It has nothing to do whether you're old enough to know better. When you're in a vulnerable spot, someone who should be helping you, who's, who's morally and ethically obliged to do that, takes advantage of that. It's no different than a doctor or a therapist. That you know, there you can't be a doctor and a therapist and have, be having sex with your patient at the same time, and they lose their license. 
and you can't be a pastor or a priest or a rabbi and be having any kind of sexual contact with that person and be able to help them spiritually. You're, you're, right. you're, you're adding to their brokenness. You're adding to their, their confusion. You're adding to their, to their pain. You're not doing what God intended you to do. You're, you have become a wolf in sheep's clothing. Yes, and you also call that out in your book, and now you're in your advocacy role right now and telling some wonderful just nuggets and encouragement. Now, you talk about 2 Corinthians 1, 4. Mm-hmm. What, what is significant about that scripture? I think it gave me a purpose. It gave me a purpose in my pain because it was saying to me, Okay, God has helped you. God is comforting you. Okay, now it's your turn to comfort someone else. And it, it gave me, it, it, it told me that, yes, what happened to me was horrific and it certainly affected my life. And for 27 years, I kept this secret and it was very difficult to do that. I kept it from my husband. All of that has now has a purpose or meaning. That doesn't mean that God intended it to happen to me or he caused it to happen so that I could be in this place. But now that I'm here, what can I do with that? And this was the verse that told me, here's what you do. And I will tell you, the greatest joy that I have is when someone will say to me, and and it's happened so many times, they will say, when I read your book, or when I heard you speak, or when you said this, it just touched me. Or I had one woman say, you told my story. This was just exactly what happened to me. I was 16 at the same time. And Everything you talk about is exactly what happened to me. And to be able to give that person a voice and an an acknowledgement that, yes, what she went through was not her fault. Um, So my comfort is giving comfort to others. And and I believe that was God's mission for me. It's it's my ministry. Well, that's a great segue to our closing and, you know, and your God's story. Uh, ending here we know there's more to your story and God is not done and he Mm -hmm. continues and will so um, can you just kind of share some closing words for our listeners like where can they get your book how can they reach out to you what are some of the things that you need and where are you headed for in the future that's about four loaded questions all in one (laughs) okay so um my book is available on amazon it's also available available on my website let me give you the website it's just my name which is sandy with a y phillips p-h-i-l-l-i-p-s kirkham k-i-r-k-h-a-m i would encourage um people to go to my website there's a lot of information on there um and then also the Hope of Survivors has a website, which I have just a wonderful information about clergy abuse. Uh, there's a division there for pastors as well, because it's not just about talking about victims, but it's also about prevention as well. Um, I would encourage victims, but I would also encourage other people to really educate yourself on clergy sexual abuse, because there's so many mis- un- misconceptions about what it is and how we can prevent it and what we should do when we discover that someone's been a victim of clergy abuse. So educate yourself as much as you can. The back of my book, there's a bibliography of books, but, you know, just Googling clergy sexual abuse, um, go to Amazon and clergy and put that in there. I would recommend um, Marie Fortune 
has a book called Is Nothing Sacred? Excellent book on a true story of a pastor who was abusing four different women at the same time in the church. Um, but she is uh, one of the experts in this field, and I would highly recommend her book. Um, and then um, Nancy Polking has a book called From Victim to Survivors, and it's just survivor stories. Um, but I, I would say if we could just educate ourselves in the understanding, because if we don't understand it, we're not going to be able to deal with it the way we need to. Yeah. There is hope and healing. Yes. And um, so next steps, Scott, have you doing now? Still? I'm, I'm going to be a pastor's conference in, in, in Lexington, or Louisville, sorry, in Louisville in June. There'll be about 6,000 pastors there. Um, I can tell you 10, 15 years ago, I probably would have been real nervous being in a room full of pastors, but I'm comfortable now. <laughs> um, so I'll be doing that conference and I'll be continuing my work with the Hope of Survivors. I'm doing a fundraiser, working on a fundraiser for the Council on Child Abuse, which will be in April, because April is Child Abuse Awareness Month. Um, so that's an important This is month. a perfect time for this yeah, podcast. It is, because yeah. April mm -hmm. is Child Abuse Prevention Month. Uh, so I'm just continually, I do do some counseling with victims. Um, if anyone wants to reach out to me, I'd be happy to um, my website. They can get my uh, email there. And I'm just, you know, waiting for the next step of God saying, here's the door that opens. Um, I'm amazed probably shouldn't be because God is amazing, but I am amazed at where he directs me and all of a sudden doors open and just like your podcast and I come and I do my thing. Yes. Well, cool. Well, thank you again, uh, Sandy, for your time and for sharing what you've shared so authentically, authentically and so graciously. I mean, and so we've had some uh, hard conversation in some areas but this again is a ministry i know that god has called you to and so thank you for coming on the altered story show and friends we will have this episode up on the website so you can um listen to the podcast there and get all of her sandy's information that will be easy for you and until the next show, friends, be heard and be healed. Altered Stories Ministry is a faith-based, nonprofit, and women's evangelistic storytelling ministry located in Overland Park, Kansas. If you enjoyed listening to today's story, your family and friends would probably benefit from hearing how God works in the lives of women all over the world, too. So please, subscribe to our show and share the link to this podcast. Share it on your social media. We also welcome your valued feedback on our stories. Also, we'd appreciate your prayerful consideration in sponsoring one of our future God-glorifying stories and welcome your tax-exempt financial donation. To find out more on how you can support our ministry, you can log on to our website at www.alteredstories.org.